Hi, Pastor Rob here from City East Church and MTL Ministries. What you hold is true. Is it really truth? Will what you believe get you through on Judgment Day? Are you keeping to the pattern of sound teaching held out in Scripture? In this series, Truth, Judgment and Eternity, I intend to deliver messages that check the solidness of our Christian foundation so as to guard the good deposit that was entrusted to us as Christ's ambassadors on this earth. This sermon was first preached on Sunday the 21st of August 2011, but due to forgetting to press record, it was not recorded. The sermon was called His Will for Us, and it's part of the Truth, Judgment and Eternity series. And the scripture that I'll be reading today, the text for this sermon, is 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 to 12. It reads in the ESV, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger, in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I just pray that your anointing will come upon me now to deliver this sermon again. And I pray that your spirit will guide me in the correct use of the words and inspiration around this sermon. And I pray that you will help everyone uh, on the internet and those that will be listening even via CD to be moved and touched by the power of the Holy Spirit as they hear this. In the name of Jesus, amen. Ever since this church, our church of City East Church in, in Adelaide, ever since this church began, I've been constantly revealing scriptures which reveal truth about judgment and eternity. Scriptures such as Galatians five thirteen to twenty five from last week, one Peter one fourteen to sixteen, which says, "As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy." One Thessalonians four verses seven to eight, which says, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And Hebrews twelve fourteen, which says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy, for without holiness no one will see the Lord. There are many, many more scriptures like this that are calling men and women of the church to holiness. And this is something that much of the church today 
really aren't in the habit of doing. I'm in the habit of calling men and women of the church to holiness. And the main reason is, is because we, we've got it in our minds that that is putting too greater expectation on the people. And therefore, the people want to flee the church because they don't want to have that pressure from their minister. But the gospel is all about calling men to holiness. Now, the New Testament epistles really are calling men and women to holiness. Ephesians 4.22-24 says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. We were supposed to put off our old self and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We are saved by grace and not by works. But this grace is not a free-for-all. This grace is unmerited favour. We don't deserve it. And that is why that now we are under God's grace, we should be all the more willing to live the holy life that he died to give us. Hebrews 13 verses 12 to 13 says, And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then... Go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. He suffered so that we could be holy. That's what that scripture says. Knowing what Christ did for us outside the city gate should inspire us to walk in the Spirit and obey the Spirit in absolutely everything. The reason I'm on this subject a lot is because God is on me about this subject a lot and he has revealed to me that many of his people... He, that he wants them to be spotless. He wants them to be unblemished. He wants them to be pure, holy, and righteous. He wants a righteous bride. He wants to show us off to the world so that they can see the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us, his people, into his holy image. Romans 12, 1-2 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. For this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We're supposed to offer our bodies. The Bible exhorts us to offer our bodies to God as living sacrifices. And what are these living sacrifices? We have sacrificed the flesh, holy, pleasing to God. In the Old Testament, they used to cut up the, the lambs and the bulls and all the different animals that would and be sacrificed. And they would cut that and they would put the flesh of that animal on the altar to God to atone for their sins. Now we've got to put our flesh, we've got to cut our flesh off us and put it on the altar so that we could be a holy people, no longer obeying our flesh. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 says, Furthermore, brethren, we beg and admonish you in virtue of our union with the Lord Jesus, this is the amplified version, that you follow the instructions which you learned from us about how you ought to walk so as to please and gratify God. See, we should follow the instructions which we learned from the apostles written in the Bible about how we ought to walk so as to please and gratify God. And then it adds, as indeed you are doing. Now, we're not saying you're not doing it, but we've got to do it, as the Bible says here, more and more abundantly. 
attaining yet greater perfection in living this life. So they talk about life as perfecting this life. This is amazing how Paul relates this understanding about holiness. For you, verse 2 says, For you know what charges and precepts we gave you on the authority and by the inspiration of the Lord Jesus. So these are charges to the church. This means this is a commandment of the church to be holy. Paul gave us many instructions in the epistles about walking in the spirit and living life in Christ. Actually, the Bible is cut and dry when it comes to recognizing who the sons of God are. You will know the sons of God by their holiness. 1 John 3.10 in the Amplified said this, or says this, By this it is made clear who take their nature from God and and are his children, and who take their nature from the devil and are his children. No one who does not practice righteousness, who does not conform to God's will in purpose, thought, and action is of God. If you don't practice righteousness, you're not of God. That's what that verse is saying. Then it says this, neither is anyone who does not love his brother, his fellow believer in Christ. So if we don't love our brothers, fellow believers in Christ, we're not of God. That's heavy. Verse 3 says uh, from our text, which is 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 12. Verse 3 says, for this is the will of God, that you should be consecrated, separated, and set apart for pure and holy living, that you should abstain and shrink from all sexual vice. The will of God for us is that we should be consecrated. The Greek word used here for consecration is hagiasmos, which means the process of making or becoming holy, set apart and sanctified. This word refers to an ongoing act of consecration. Paul said, I die daily. That was his way of saying, I consecrate myself daily. Charles Finney called it perpetual unending consecration. So there are three types of sanctification for the believer, and I I must go through this. Gary Gulan explains that the first type of sanctification is what he terms positional sanctification or definitive. You can uh, read about this type of sanctification in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2 and also 6 verse 11. You can read about it in Hebrews 10, verse 10, and also 14. And it is the Christian's position or standing before God based on the death of Christ. It is a product of justification, redemption, and regeneration. The Christian at the new birth is separated from the penalty and power of his sin, which is a legal position of holiness. It makes the Christian holy because he is set apart from his sin and placed in Christ. It is accomplished by the work of Christ and not by something the Christian does or continues to do. And it occurs at the moment of salvation. Sanctification occurs with redemption and justification all in one moment when you first give your life to Jesus. It makes every Christian a saint regardless of his daily life. And I just added in brackets uh, when the daily life that they were living, when he or she were living at the time they gave their life to Christ. So if they were drug addicts or prostitutes or whatever, at that moment their sins are forgiven. But if they go back to that life, they're not consecrated any longer. They need to re-consecrate themselves. And that becomes uh, the next position of sanctification or the second type, which is progressive sanctification and or experiential, when you experience it and you walk it 
walk it out. And this is can be found in 1 Peter 1.16, 1 Thessalonians 4.3-7, which is our text today. This aspect of sanctification refers to the Christian's daily life, and you find that in 1 Peter 1.15. Here, sanctification relates to our separation from sin and our yieldingness to righteousness, and that's in Romans 6.19. The Christian life is a process of becoming more and more like Christ. It is commanded of each Christian. It is a work that the Christian must do. It begins at salvation and is an ongoing activity throughout the Christian life. It is accomplished primarily through the application of the Word of God, and I added, an obedience to the Holy Spirit. We cannot leave the Holy Spirit out because you can't even discern the Word of God without the Holy Spirit. Now, the third type of sanctification is perfective, and I'm just adding this so that we can understand this other uh, level of sanctification. And it's called perfective or final sanctification, and you find this in 1 John 3, verses 1 to 3, Jude verses 24 to 25. This aspect of sanctification is still future. Here, sanctification refers to glorification, where the Christian anticipates the final transformation of his body into the likeness of Christ and is free from the presence of sin. This is accomplished by God alone. It takes place when Jesus returns for the church. It makes the Christian sinlessly perfect and glorified like Christ. Now, I included this bit of theology about sanctification because many Christians are under the delusion that once they give their lives to Christ and are redeemed and justified before God, that that is it. But that's not it. That's the beginning. We are new creatures from that moment. But after that, we must learn to walk and talk in the Spirit and live holy lives. You know, think of it this way. Once you get a new car and you get it straight off the showroom floor, the moment you drive it out, it begins to get dirty. The moment we drive that car out of that beautiful, clean showroom, that car will begin to get dirty. It does not stay sparkling indefinitely. You need to take care of it, wash it and clean it, park it in safe places so that it doesn't get scratched, and drive it safely so you don't crash and wreck it. Now, we can understand from that analogy that, okay, when we become new creatures in Christ, we are like a brand new car. The moment we walk out of the church or wherever we were when we gave our lives to Jesus, the moment we walk out, we will begin to get dirty. And then we've got to keep on washing our life in the blood of Jesus, keep on reconsecrating ourselves to Jesus. It's an ongoing process. It's like a race that we are running and we have got to run it and we can't sit back and just think that we're just going to be clean forever. Because you could sit, if you just sat in a chair day after day and didn't do any activity whatsoever, you would begin to smell. And this is in the Christian life, we just sit back and do nothing and think, okay, I'm not sinning or anything. You know what? You still begin to stink because just that idleness is a sin before God. Progressive consecration. I'm going to go a bit further with that. Verse 4, and that's what this whole sermon is about that each one of you should know how to possess, control, and manage his own body in consecration. So each one of us, this is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 4, each one of us should know how to possess, control, and manage his own body in consecration. We should know how to control our own body in purity and how to separate ourselves from, from things profane. And we should honor 
not to be used in passion of the lust like the heathen. We should honor our bodies. We shouldn't use it in passionate lust like the heathen. And because the heathen are ignorant of the true God and have no knowledge of his will. So here Paul calls us to progressive sanctification, progressive consecration. We've got to live this life out and, and consecrate ourselves to the Lord daily. Paul figures that considering the great salvation we have inherited and the spirit who lives in us and counsels us daily, that we should know how to possess, control and manage our body in consecration. He then adds that the heathen who are ignorant of the true God have no knowledge of God's will. But we who know Christ do have knowledge of his will and therefore we should live according to that knowledge. Makes sense, doesn't it? Verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says that no man transgress and overreach his brother and defraud him in this matter or defraud his brother in business. For the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we have already warned you solemnly and told you plainly. That's powerful. This is a pretty obvious requirement of the faith. Paul is talking about defrauding his brother in relation to this knowledge of holiness. Do you know what? If you go into a church where they don't teach you to be holy, they just teach you to do whatever you want, you're free, just live life and believe in Jesus, you're being defrauded. You're being defrauded of holiness, the knowledge of holiness, which will bring you to salvation. Now, what I'm saying in, 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 when I say that is, yes, we are saved by grace. It's not by our works, but that grace must have evidence in our life. We must live it out, and holiness becomes a fruit of repentance. And that's why John the Baptist said we must produce fruit in keeping with repentance. If there's no fruit, you can assume we aren't keeping with repentance. And therefore, if you're not keeping with repentance, you aren't repentant. Therefore, your sins aren't atoned for. That's a scary position. And this information must be studied and understood. So as I was saying, Paul is talking about defrauding his brother in relation to this knowledge of holiness. But he also adds in business. This is interesting. Defrauding, which is illegally obtaining money from someone by deception. That's what it is. Illegally obtaining money from someone by deception deception and this is an act that if done in the church this scripture tells us that the lord the lord is the avenger in these things that no man transgress and overreach his brother overreach his means to get the better of someone by cunning deception no man in the church should overreach his brother no man should transgress his brother and defraud him in business now, holiness is going to be redefined in this, this screen here. Verse 7 says, For God has not called us to impurity, but to consecration, to dedicate ourselves to the most thorough purity. Here again, Paul emphasizes God's call to us to be holy. Here, the Amplified Bible really describes the level of holiness that we are called to, and it says thorough purity. That's an amazing description of, of holiness, to dedicate ourselves to the most thorough purity. Saints, I don't know about you, but when the Bible tells us that we should dedicate ourselves to the most thorough purity, how dare we think that we don't need to? How dare we think that we are saved regardless of how we live our life? Because the Bible calls us to thorough purity and not just 
calling us to it. He, they, the Bible's calling us to dedicate ourselves to it. Thorough means complete with regard to every detail, not superficial, not partial, complete. And purity means freedom from adulteration and or contamination. So anything that contaminates you, anything that adulterates you, Holiness, then, is complete freedom in every detail from adulteration and contamination with no partiality or superficiality. What a powerful description. I'll say that again. Holiness is complete freedom in every detail from adulteration and contamination with no partiality or superficiality. That's a powerful definition of holiness. Verse 8 says, Therefore, whoever disregards and sets aside and rejects this, disregards not man but God, whose very spirit whom he gives to you is holy, chaste, and pure. I'll just explain the word chaste. It means morally pure in thought and conduct, decent and modest. You know, every thought, the Holy Spirit who is in you is chaste and pure, pure in thought, pure in conduct, decent, modest. And we must not disregard this. We must not set this knowledge aside and think it's not important. This is the essence of Christianity. You ask any unbeliever in the world what they expect of a Christian. And they'll usually say about three things. They expect a holy man. If you're going to be claim to be a Christian, you must be holy. So when they don't see holiness, that's the first thing they disregard you as being a true Christian. An unbeliever will tell you how to be a Christian better than the Christians will. They will expect holiness. That's why they put such high expectations on Christians. And when they fail, they, they crucify them in a sense, don't they? Because of their unholiness, their lack of holiness. Another thing that someone would tell you, an unbeliever would tell you about being a Christian, they'll say a Christian should be reading the Bible and a Christian should be praying. So if we're not praying, if we're not reading the Bible, as far as they're concerned, we're not being true Christians. So this is important information. What he is saying, what Paul is saying back in this, this scripture in verse 8, which says, therefore, whoever disregards or sets this aside and rejects it, disregards not man but God. Now what he's saying is that if we disregard this teaching, and we live unholy lives, we will have to answer to God and not men. Even though we probably get persecuted by the unbelievers because they'll see our hypocrisy, but we will ultimately have to answer to God and not men for our lack of holiness. Verse 9 continues, But concerning brotherly love for all other Christians... You have no need to have anyone write to you, for you yourselves have been personally taught by God to love one another. And who's that? The Holy Spirit has personally taught them. And so the Holy Spirit teaches us to. And verse 10 says, And indeed you already are extending and displaying your love to all the brethren throughout Macedonia. But we beseech you and earnestly exhort you, brethren, that you excel in this matter more and more. Just like in Galatians 5:13 to 14, as I was explaining last week in this in the sermon Spirit Walkers, Paul accompanies the call to holiness with a call to love all the brethren in the church. 
In verse 10, Paul congratulates them by stating that indeed the Thessalonians are already excelling in displaying love to one another. And likewise, I can say the same of our city east congregation. Because I, I look around and I see so much love towards one another, so much fellowship. I haven't actually been in that many churches where we have that strong a fellowship. We have a wonderful fellowship here at City East. But I will say this, we should do so more and more. Let's not take, take this fellowship, this spirit-led fellowship for granted. Let's excel in this. Let's do it more. Let's work on it. Let's develop it and make it the, the essence of City East Church. Verse 11 says, To make it your ambition and definitely endeavor to live quietly and peacefully, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we charged you. Verse 12 says, so that you may bear yourselves becomingly to be correct and honorable and command the respect of the outside world, being dependent on nobody, self, which is self-supporting, and having need of nothing. If we live these kinds of lives before God and men, we will command the respect of the outside world and ultimately God will be glorified by our lives as we reveal to the world the power of God to transform and change his people by the Holy Spirit. And that's the essence of what this sermon is really trying to tackle here, is that we've got to prove to this world that we are disciples of Christ. Jesus says, if, if love one another, and by that, that the world will know that you are my disciples by the way that we love one another. We've got to take that seriously. But also, as I said before, when as the unbelievers look at Christians, and if you ask them what, what is your definition of a Christian, they would usually say, and this is people in the know, will say that the Christians should be holy, according to their Bible. The Christians should be Bible readers, and Christians should be prayers. That's what they expect to see. And Christians should be loving and tolerant. And I'll just explain about tolerance. We are not to be tolerant of evil. We are to be lovers of good. So I hope this sermon has helped you uh, today as you've listened to it. And Lord, I just pray that this sermon will go forth into the world and uh, produce fruit. And Lord, that we will see many people around the world impacted by this message in your mighty and most glorious name. Amen.